Welcome to Turnpikers, the show about the people who make up the Denver and Boulder tech scene. We're your hosts, Luke Beatty and Danny Newman. Information about this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. Welcome to this week's episode of the Turnpikers. Before we get started, I want to call out our uh, our partner here, which is the Postmodern Company on uh, 27th and Walnut, where we do this podcast. And they're the reason why this sounds so much more professional from a production standpoint compared to the quality of the content. So It does sound uh, really nice when you listen to an episode. There's, it there's is some very nice, especially we have a lot of podcasts that are done over phone lines and things like that. And the quality here is uh, pretty much unmatched. And these guys do an awesome job, and uh, we're super appreciative of them letting us come in here and uh, and use their space and do post-production and make it sound better and try to cut out the swear words and do all the things that make this dream come true. So thanks to the Postmodern Company for helping us do that. In this episode, we're going to talk about software and design education and what that means today. Uh, and we have Jeff here with us who runs Turing Software what do you what do you call the school? What Just we, the Turing School. The Turing School, what we say. Uh, which is located here in Denver, uh, mostly teaching, mostly Rails. Yeah, we just started a second program, but uh, the original program is all Ruby and Rails centric. Yep, we want to learn more about that. Since we got started with this, we've always wanted to have somebody in who can talk about really uh, teaching programmers, um, software education, professional development, and then also how, how, how people get started now being engineers and uh, supporting the tech environment here in Colorado. And, you know, I think the accessibility of engineering talent is due in large part to the evolution of, and or really a, an explosion of schools like this and programs like this. Obviously, I'm sure yours is differentiated, but maybe you can uh, give us the background on what Turing's all about and yeah. how you got it started. Yeah, 2003, I started teaching middle school, teaching technology, and then moved into teaching high school. Uh, did that for four years, ran a middle school for two years, and then started into adult education in 2009. And I uh, was trying to teach some weekend classes to folks who were like a salesperson. They want to automate some of their workflow, or you're a teacher and you want to automate some things. It really didn't work. Uh, nobody signed up. And I, I started doing corporate training, which was very profitable and soulless, very soulless inside of a lot of overly air-conditioned conference rooms. No one wanted to be there, etc. Um, so kind of use that to pay off debts and pay off college loans. And then um, late 2011, got a call from a friend who was at the time the uh, uh, VP of engineering at Living Social. And he said, if you had really high quality people, how long would it take to turn them into job ready software developers? They don't know anything about programming at the beginning. They come out and they're ready to produce. And I said, uh, six months. And he said, well, I have budget for five months. And I was like, five months it is. Uh, and so we launched this program called Hungry Academy at the time. Um, it was a situation that was kind of like you see in science a lot that looks like simultaneous invention. There was a program called Dev Bootcamp starting up in, in San Francisco, um, a program called Code Academy that later be called Starter League in Chicago, and then Hungry Academy in DC, where I'm from. Um, so we started that up, ran that class, and the the hope from Living Social was 24 students. Maybe they'd hire like 10 or 12 coming out. Um, they ended up hiring all 24 and said, thank you very much. Please don't do it again. 
Um, we our engineering team just went from 100 to 124, and we can't afford to have another 24 in, in six months. So screwing uh, up our code. Yeah, exactly. Uh, creating all kinds of new problems now. But we looked at options. Uh, to do it at other companies. I didn't want to get in a situation where we were like hopping around the country, moving our families and significant others and so forth. Um, and so I said, all right, we want to do a more like sustainable in-place model, more of a tuition-based model. Um, I met the folks from Galvanize, decided to come out here and start uh, what was then called the G School program. Uh, it's now called Galvanize Full Stack. After a few months there, kind of figured out that like my uh, traditional K-12 save the world roots and like their business VC roots like weren't going to line up in the long run. Yeah, that kind of imploded, right? Uh, yeah, that'd be a good term. That'd yeah. be a good term. I think, uh, you know. That's a good amount of time though to realize something's going to implode. Well, Six months. Some of us have done things that have lasted a lot longer than yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my, my wife likes to call that year my, uh, my MBA where I learned like a lot of hard lessons and um, yeah, I made mistakes that I'll never make again. I'll say that. Yeah. Um, so we got out of there after, it, it was like three months was when we knew we were leaving and six months we had an, an agreement to leave but decided to stay. To I had already recruited and selected the second class and I felt like we needed to fulfill the promise of those students to uh, execute that second class. So we stuck around, finished the year, ended there, and then... When you say we... Do you travel in a in a in a posse, or have you got like a boy band <laughs> that goes with it? Was, this, uh, it was three that? of us making three up uh, Jumpstart Lab at the time. Got it. So and yeah, you got a crew. It was a little crew. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a tendency to. I don't know. I don't know if this is weird, but I have a tendency to say we because when I say I, it feels like you're taking credit for everything. You know, no, yeah. no. That's why. That's why I shine yeah. a light on the uh, on the pronoun. I just yeah. want to make sure that if there's other people involved, we get them. Yeah, yeah. Good uh, people. Good people for sure. Um, so we had a little bit of a non compete window, and that gave us some good time to kind of like go back to basics, figure out what was important to us. In the meantime, in in just the two years or year and a half that had passed since Hunger Academy started, now this all of a sudden was an industry and schools are popping up all over the place. And it felt very opportunistic. Like we had kind of proven out a model that there was something here. You could teach programming in a relatively short period of time. You could charge people money for that. And there was a flood of people who were interested in charging as much money as possible to run a program as short as possible to deliver some decent results enough that another group of students would show up and companies started getting some pretty big investments big valuations hundred million dollar valuations and so forth that's not my thing i i think it's cool for people to build like for-profit businesses but when i look at education i see education as uh, an, an ecosystem like those little biomes you can buy right where it's like the sealed glass and everything lives in there uh, and when you're running for-profit education, you're basically sucking oxygen out of the biome. And you got to get those 10x returns. And that means that money, that revenue is not getting reinvested in the ecosystem, not getting reinvested in the students. So um, I said, let's make a thing that doesn't have that pressure, won't have investors, won't have uh, the possibility of acquisition. And let's just make a thing that's really fucking good at teaching students. And when we feel good about that, you know, like what, when do we like to see that exist? Part of it is that 
this is like my big thing, you know, and I, I spent, uh, I, I worked at a couple different schools, et cetera, the last f 15 years or whatever as an adult. I said like, all right, this is the thing I'm going to put 10 years into. I'm not going to build something where I decide to leave and then a month later somebody else decides to sell it. Yeah. Like that's, that's not how it's going to be. So let's make a nonprofit that can't be bought, can't be sold, um, can't be invested in. And then let's prove that you don't need all these business things to run a good school. You don't need right. $10 million investment. You don't need like 18 campuses or whatever it is. Let's just be like small, let's bootstrap, and let's have quality be number one, like quality student outcome quality, and then see where it goes from there. So help me understand why that makes sense from other than just from a straight sort of like B Corp kind of principled perspective. Yeah. Because I too started as a school teacher and a school nice. administrator nice. Um, in middle school and high school. And I always have kind of thought of, I, I've always felt like the reason why lots of schools don't work is because they're not for profit. Mm. And that if everybody there was for profit, People would be paid more, accountability would be higher, mm. facilities would be better. And I, as a school teacher and an educator and somebody who got his master's in education administration, those were the models that seemed to work for me, were the ones where, you know, Votech professional education for profit models were the ones that really worked mm. because you could, the students could then also hold the schools accountable. You have to compete. And it seemed like that was when I started to see this happening even at the K-12 and at the college level, sure, I started to think this is good, right? Because there's this idea of sky's the limit for teachers, for students, for administrators, for organizations, and accountability will be higher for all of the constituencies. Help me understand yeah. why, from your perspective, sure. Why that? Why that's broken? Because that's like super, super interesting to me. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm easily convinced of it, <laughs> of, of, of the contrary. But there's a lot of things about yeah. you know, for-profit education that that make a lot of sense from an sure. accountability sure. standpoint. I think um, one of my like essential personality traits or whatever is I'm very intrigued by problems that people say like can't be done. You know, or like what what is the thing that other people aren't willing to do. And so I think a traditional like for-profit education operating in a typically nonprofit world, it has the potential to innovate with the model to um, prove out new ideas. On the, at the same time, like being a nonprofit in a for-profit world, I think is the hardest thing you can do. You know, like to say, we're going to do battle with for-profits that have all these advantages, that have this big seed investment that are... But maybe they're not advantage. Uh, when you're covering payroll, it's an advantage, you know? But you can pay more. Like, the, the same things, you know? Like, yeah, you, you can pay more. You can offer equity. You can hypothetically, like, attract the best people. You can spend money on marketing and all that. And for us, starting out, it was like... Me and and however much I could charge on my Amex for uh, before they so, come back. So knocking. your model is charge as little as possible for tuition, and I would say we, we try and charge what it's what market. we think it's worth. You know, market because um, there's market now for this, right? Yeah. We know how much it costs to get your yeah. sort of six month. We are. I'm going to go work at a startup. It's tricky in that um, 
our program's longer than every other program. How long is it? Uh, 27 weeks. Okay. And so if you look at a per week cost, we're one of the cheapest. And when you look at an aggregate cost, we're one of the most expensive. So it depends, it's kind, of, it kind of depends how you count. So it's market. Yeah. Loosely, it's, yeah. it's not... It's, it's not it's discount, not, for sure. And, go ahead. I'm gonna ask, I'll ask all the questions. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, 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 I was just kind of still down the same path. Is, yeah. I mean, is the, is the idea of setting it up as a nonprofit that you want to create just a... Do you have just one campus? Is it just one kind of... Yeah. So you guys are... In, Where is that? Uh, right now, we are at 15th and Blake, and we're underneath a Patagonia, yep. um, which is funny to me. It's kind of full circle. The first charter school I taught at started in the basement of a Safeway. And so it kind of feels like living that life all over again. We it's have no loud. Windows. That building's a loud building, isn't it? Um, I bet you hear every customer. Yeah, category. we actually I was just in a meeting, and and the person was kind of like concernedly looking to the ceiling, like, oh, they're just like rolling some of their carts around. It's yeah, no big deal. That's right. Um, we're about to sign a lease at Seventeenth uh, and Market, which we're very excited about. Double up the space. Nice. And how many how many students are you? In a cohort right now. Yeah, so right now a cohort uh, starts around in the 20s, typically 24 to 28. We run four cohorts at a time. Uh, so right now, today, we have uh, about 90 students in our back-end program. We just started the front-end program, which is currently 14 students, uh, but is ramping up. So end of the year, we anticipate being at, at about 180 students in the building every day. So let's let's switch this over to helping us understand more about you know there's been all of this shenanigans around how the tuitions are guaranteed for jobs and that whole kind of thing. Sure. Is that shenanigans like, is an interesting word? Uh, it's it's. Yeah. Uh, I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying sure. that's a lot. There, you know, that's a, that was like a big premise of it, it's a right? Huge selling I mean, point. It, there's not many. That was the value proposition for the early, yeah, Code Academy and all these sort of things, which is that your schmuck insurance is that you're going to have a job, and yep. there's this whole, you know, which is you're paying is, your tuition and yeah, you're less than a year, yeah, yeah. It was all all of these different kinds of very unique, and I don't know whether they were marketing shenanigans or they were just sort of like. Really, we stand by what we're doing, and there's this huge demand for these, right. you know, entry level devs, and you can fill these, and we have these relationships, and we're pipelining and all that. Yep. Where does that sit now with the ubiquity of all these programs? Yeah, I think we. So when we were first setting up school here in Denver, that was something that was important to me was the tuition guarantee to say like if we say you're good, everyone else will say you're good too, and basically we're gonna stand behind that. And so we continued that when we set up Turing, and the we're, we have an overseeing body is the Colorado Department of Private Occupational Schools. We call them DPAs, and uh, but they you're not private. we are private, even you're as private nonprofit. Yeah, well, it's like we fall under their their domain. Got I'll it. Um, and they approved that policy and then about 18 months later when we were up for renewal they changed their mind and decided that uh, a guarantee of any form is considered like deceptive marketing practices regardless there was no like deception or complaints or anything like that so anyway they said regardless of whether you could you could yeah, deliver on that promise or, or not yeah, right, exactly yeah. so they said you have to cancel this and we said uh, okay so we, we canceled that that was right. probably about 8 months ago now 
Um, so, and does that go for everybody? Uh, all the schools who are offering it, yeah. Our, our former school here had already canceled theirs a while before. I don't know if that was related to like regulatory or just internal decision. Um, there's, I think there's one program in Portland that still has a guarantee. There weren't many and now there are a few. Or, Got it. So it's a national kind of decision? Yeah. I like that as a massive hiring person just because it just sounds like I think it cheapens the profession and I think it just, you know what I mean? Like, who could say that? Mm. Right? I like, would still do it. If we could do it, I would still do it. Right, but... You guys now have a track record that you but can you point would, to. But we don't, say, we, you, don't need to, you don't need to say it now. Yeah. Right, because yeah. it's sort of like a... But it sort of made it sound like anyone and everyone, you know? And Come on down, get your Right, get and your I think, too, I think, you know, from my perspective, my reaction to that, because I was obviously involved in trying to involved in all these pipelining things too mm -hmm. was I didn't like it because it it sort of presume it didn't take into account any of the f filters is the wrong word but I'll say filters mm -hmm. that we take into account which is gender and race and all these kinds of things it just sort of meant like anybody at any time if you can make it through this outward bound then you can be on the team kind of thing it doesn't like hmm. you know I, I think it's um, I think it's healthier to have it, people look at it in a more academic way. Yeah, I would say, you know, although it's not policy anymore, uh, we'll probably continue to refund students' tuition if they don't if they don't have the outcomes in practice. Yeah, yeah, that, and I think that's it's the, the practice side of it is different than the sort of go to market side sure, of it. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. And, and it was definitely like a ramp up strategy, right? Sure. When you're, when you got no track record or it's like some track record from DC or some track record from an old program, you got to claim something <laughs> to kind of get off the line. So how many, uh, how many, how many students have uh, gone through the program at this point now? So we just um, released this big 2015 outcomes report that tracked 105 graduates. Um, this year, so far, we've had another 70 or so graduates. Um, my two early Denver classes were another 48, and then uh, the DC class was 24. So altogether, it's somewhere around like 250, 300 graduates that I kind of identify as mine. Mm -hmm. They identify as mine also, regardless of which program they came through. That's great. That's awesome. You should be really proud of that. It's That's uh, huge. It's almost hard to remember because we're so like down <laughs> it's in the so details. It's so hard and, and such yeah. a miserable experience <laughs> that I can't remember. It is like Outward Bound. That's what Outward Bound is. People say they'd never do it again. And then four months later, they're like, I can't really do that again. I don't remember how terrible it was. Yeah. I was actually just looking at alumni lists yesterday. And it's interesting to, to go back to those early classes and, of course, like still remember all those people and to be like, oh, this person's there, this person's there, this person's Where like, are some of those places? Um, man, you know, like just all over the place, uh, folks have started businesses, folks are at like top tier consultancies, your pivotal labs and thought bots. And, and there are other folks who are still in their first job. Just it's a beautiful along. thing now, how easy it is to, without hiring a private investigator or some sort of alumni relations yeah. person. To, it's easy to track people now, which yeah, is really absolutely. great. Because then Cause you don't, you don't have to be like interfering in their lives yeah. and, that, and sending them questionnaires and all that sort of stuff. You can just really track that. So obviously we're interested in you and the school, but we're also probably even more interested in what you think software development 
training, professional development, like, you know, this thing that you were a part of, which is sure. this idea that, you know, whether you're a high school grad or not a high school grad, or you've already got your MBA or whatever, um, you can come in and you can learn the basic skills around um, being a front end or back end developer. Yep. What are the trends uh, that you're starting to see around it? You know, yeah. Both, I would say, in two ways. One, on just on the who side, right? Like mm -hmm. who, who's coming through the doors now? And secondly, on the curriculum side. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we all sort of are recovering from our rails hangovers and the sort <laughs> of influx of of that being the 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 new cold fusion. Uh, and, Ouch. Uh, well, I mean, right? Like it was the, it was the rapid development yeah, and, and a good yeah, one, right? Yeah. Like a good rapid yeah. development thing. And now we have a lot of people walking around being like, you know, where's the where's the code academy for Erlang or some of these yeah. sort of yeah. esoteric programming languages? Sure. And and sort of what do you think about the who and the curriculum yeah. trends that you're seeing? For us, um, we've definitely seen cultural shift in students over time. Um, Students, our early students, early classes, they had a very high risk tolerance. Um, they were generally one step removed from programming. So they had worked as a project manager and managed programmers, or they had a spouse who was a programmer, or they somehow were like very, very familiar with software They were an arm's length away from it. Yeah. Now folks come to us who, we have two students who are Uber drivers, their students, the, some of our students were in their cars chatting them up about it and they signed up. They don't know anything about software development, technology companies, whatever, you know. And so I'd say most often now students have no connection to tech, no connection to programming. Um, so that means that we have to ramp up in some different ways. Like we have to teach them. We have to show them, expose them to like, what do these companies look like? What do you wear to an interview? You know, where it's like, if you, if you show Well, that up, makes it a lot more rewarding. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for seriously, sure. that must like, make your job a lot more rewarding. That's then. real end-to-end. Right. Yeah. I mean, Taking, introducing people to it yeah. is probably a lot more interesting than just saying, hey, you already know the people over there where you're right. going to get your job. Right. Let me help you right. get the skills you need to do your job. And essentially, it's about like, privilege and economic change, right? So that person was already probably like high on privilege and in a good paying job. And now maybe software development is going to be more fun for them. Um, but what I think is really interesting when we look at the student outcomes, like 2015 outcomes, the average student uh, increased their salary by 35,000 from around uh, 35 to 40 coming in to 75 after. And when you look at that, and then of course extrapolate out that two, three, four years in, they're at 90 or 100 or 110. They've quickly vaulted from the border between uh, what the Bureau of Labor and Statistics considers like lower income. They've jumped over middle class into upper class, which is 110 a year um, or upper income. And what does that mean for? their long-term quality of life, right? If you look at the research on relationships, it says that uh, the number one thing couples fight about is money, right? So in if you earn twice or three times as much as you otherwise would have, you're more likely to find and stay with a person that is important to you. If you choose to have kids moving those income brackets, those kids are more likely to have opportunities to go to college. They're more likely to have uh, you know, support throughout their academic career. They're more likely to have a parent at home uh, in order to like model behavior and help them and so forth. And so it's like 
in this stupid seven months of making people type on computers, we can create like multi-generational economic change is the part that to me is like worth spending your life on. So before we get to the second part about the curriculum, yeah. I have an, another question, which is I've noticed, and I don't know, Danny, if you've noticed this, but yeah, I think one of the most important changes that can happen in, in our culture of whatever, tech, software, is diversity. Sure. And I don't mean gender or socioeconomic uh, or religious or race or whatever. I mean just sort of everything. Yeah. Um, all things. And I think one of the fundamental things that can make that change is that if you have people that come into the business who are there because of the lifestyle that it can provide, as opposed to a sort of brainwashed person over the product, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think if you just say, hey, listen, we create health and wellness devices, IoT, blah, 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 and the people that we want to work for us are just a bunch of sportsosauruses who love sporty things and are sporty, 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 like that's not going to, there's just no way that that's going to create a, a, a diverse community just yep. because you're, you have these people who are really involved in that. I started a company that was about democratization of media. So we had all these people who just cared so much about the open web and all that sort of stuff. And then we just, it was, we just had a lot of people that looked like a lot of the people. And so I think the real way to change that is to find people who are there not because of the cause necessarily. And I think founders have a hard time of this because they don't, they want people who are really, you know, brainwashed by the product and love that vertical or love that, you know, topic. But can this concept sort of help augment that group of people who, who are there because it's the way they like to earn a living in a way that can change their lives and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. Maybe come, come hell or high water on the actual vertical or, or whatever. Or do you find that it's still people gravitate right. to the sort of like-minded people? I think, um, you know, we talk about our vision being a world where the people building the technology reflect the people using the technology and where tech is in, injecting itself into every part of our life. That means that the industry needs to look like the population. And I think the role of accelerated training programs like ours is already being realized in helping diversify whatever axis you want to look at. The industry is getting more diverse because of programs like this, because it is inviting to a lot of different types of people. And then when it comes to the company side, you know, I think there are a good number of companies that want to diversify their team, want to diversify especially their engineering teams, whether it's by gender or race or sexuality or or just all those things. uh, They don't know how. And they don't know where to find people. They don't know how to support those people, right? It's like more than the K-12 pipeline problem. We see, like you look at uh, women in, in software engineering, like few stay more than five years because it's generally speaking like a female hostile environment. So there's a tremendous amount of change that needs to happen in order to create the industry that we know can exist. But I think a good way to do it is to start equipping people with really good skills around the tech, really good skills around the business, around the teamwork that it takes to build successful products. And then I think for for folks like our students, so many of them are career switchers or job switchers that 
the things that they did before can be incredibly useful. And, you know, sometimes, yeah, in, in you know, active sports companies, it can be a little bit nauseating, the uh, level of But it can be enthusiasm. that way oh, about a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, it really can be. I yeah. Mean, you know. Yeah. I, I, I also, I mean, it's kind of on the, the flip side of, of all of this, though, too. I think that if you are doing it purely for the kind of economic increase and don't have that kind of, like, core passion and curiosity... Like I think that makes it difficult too. You can sure. you can learn the you can sure. learn the skills. You can go and do your nine to five. But if you're not like thinking about and like you know kind of doing those you know that problem solving and that curiosity quest, like yeah, yeah. Then I also, mean, you have to be you have to be down with the with the. But, sure. but I've been around this long enough to know where it's sort of like you can go into these offices. I can tell you exactly what those people are going to be like, mm-hmm. and you just can't. You can't be that way, yeah. you know? And then maybe the sacrifices you have is some people who, you know what? They're just glow-in-the-dark designers. Their lifestyle isn't built around IoT or health and wellness or medicine. I mean, it's the same thing in, in the health and wellness world. Like, the very sort of deep nature of a lot of these verticals mm-hmm. promotes a lack of diversity, along with a lot of other things, which we, sure. which I think are... I think the, like, being engaged in the domain is incredibly valuable, like for your satisfaction as an employee, you yeah. know? So um, coming back to like one of those drivers, he was an Uber driver and a personal trainer. And now he's at a company called Captain U down on Santa Fe. Yeah, I know those guys, um, Building software, helping high school athletes like find and access, you know, college athletics and so forth. And so it's still like in this domain that he knows and enjoys so much, but now at a totally different uh, pay scale, level of responsibility, et, et cetera. Yeah. And then let's go to the second yeah, point curriculum, curriculum piece. Uh, so I have some theories on this, which might prove out to be total bullshit, but uh, I think that. Rails as a technology is interesting because I I think it might be the last time that a big chunk of the industry all goes one direction. When Rails came out, 2005, really grew through 2007, 2008, there was no YouTube. There weren't like really good communication tools, no GitHub, no Stack Overflow, etc., and so there was this really strong negative pressure to launching a community in order to get a tech, to get enough people invested. Like you, you had to build a critical mass or it would just die out. And now it's so easy to spawn communities that I don't think we see this like evolutionary pressure anymore. And so we will continue, you know, I, I think two years ago, people used to ask about like, Ember and Angular and React and like uh, Backbone and like what's going to win? And the answer is n- nothing. No, no, there's going to be no more winning anymore. We will just always have like 18, 24, 32 technologies that this company's using this little grouping of the stack and this company's doing this grouping of the stack. And so I think that from the curriculum side, yeah, our back end program is Ruby. Will it always be Ruby? No. But I don't think it matters very much. Like we can, if we were teaching you how to type code, then we would have to get the just right technology. If we teach you how to be a programmer and use this language as a tool to like exercise those skills, but build skills that are transportable to JavaScript, to Elixir, to Erlang, to PHP, whatever you want to do, then uh, that's like, that's durable education. That's durable learning. Uh what are the growth plans? Yeah. So you're in D.C. and Denver now. Is that? Uh, no, just here. Just, just here. here. We're all Denver. 
all Denver. Um, so I believe really strongly in critical mass. So uh, the joke I say to people, it's just kind of snark, I guess it's not really funny, is, you know, have you ever been to MIT's campus in Atlanta? And people say no, because like, it doesn't exist. Like if you want to go to MIT, you go to Cambridge. And like whether you think Boston sucks or not, I personally kind of do, um, too bad, that's where you go. And so for us, that's Denver. And you, you come here, you're not signing up for life. Uh, you come for seven months, maybe a little extra if you need some time. And then you can go off and live whatever life you want. So uh, we will not expand outside of Denver. We'll be, right now, we don't like that we're six blocks apart. We have two offices six blocks apart. Um, by mid-fall, we should be back all in one spot, about 17 17,000 square feet, uh, get all those students in one roof. So to answer the question about expansion, uh, we believe in expanding here. And so we've just launched this front-end program that'll double the size of the student body, increase the size of the staff. Um, and when that's fully up to speed, we'll figure out and launch the next thing and just keep it going. And maybe one day we'll like take over a building instead of just being a floor of a building. And when would you say that the whole community goes for full circle and that your your alums are are hiring your yeah it's already happened it's already yeah. happened um we're proud to uh have some alums at quick left in boulder and denver and they're running teams and hiring other alums um this company uh, clothing company bonobos yeah. out in new york that has like multiple generations of our graduates um and yeah it's i i look forward to the day i think it's probably two years out where a, a significant chunk of students are going through the tech stars, are getting seed funding, are launching companies, and then coming to us for, uh, yeah, kind of that virtuous cycle of employment. Um, we see that the hardest thing is to get a first student hired at a company. Once one student's hired, then it's like the door is kicked open and they just kind of rain through the door. Uh, that rain doesn't come through doors. But uh, hopefully, the, the hard thing is getting that first one hired. Well, thanks for coming on, Jeff. It's awesome to, to meet you and hear that story and get some sort of perspective on, that, on the whole um, space. Uh, how do people who listen to this get in touch with you or, or, or connect with you? Yeah. Just through... We're always looking, looking for students. Right now we're in an instructor hiring push, so developers who want to try their hand at uh, teaching. Can that ready. be a part-time deal? Uh, probably not. It's a really, really hard job. Now you're building MIT. It's uh, much harder than building software. And yeah. that's, that's the hardest thing is I think the average developer can't handle teaching. Um, so we're looking for those folks and always looking for students and hiring companies and so forth. Um, Turing.io, got the got the contact page, or uh, I'm on Twitter a lot. It's just the letter J number three, and that's it. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really great to meet you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Turnpikers, recorded at Postmodern Company in downtown Denver. More information on this show is available at turnpikers.com and at turnpikers on Twitter. Reach out with questions and recommend future guests. 